0: Sometime prior to Moses returning to Egypt to deliver the children of Israel at Jehovah's command, Moses was caught up into an exceedingly high mountain where he saw God face to face and conversed with him. Our God is a God of glory, light, power, energy, heat, incomprehensible to us mortals. Moses was given a portion of that in order to abide the presence of God but God did much more on that mountain than just lift Moses to a higher physical plane. He lifted him emotionally and spiritually. Behold, I am the Lord God Almighty, and endless is my name, and behold, thou, Moses, art my son. The prophet Joseph Smith once taught, if men do not comprehend the character of God, they do not comprehend themselves. End of quote. Well, the Lord continued speaking to Moses and said, "I have a work for thee, Moses, my son, and thou art in the similitude of mine only begotten." And again, the Lord said, "And behold, this one thing I show unto thee, Moses, my son, for thou art in the world, and now I show it unto thee." And the Almighty went on from there to show Moses the world upon which he stood and the inhabitants thereof to the end of time. Three times in that initial encounter, God the Father referred to Moses as, quote, My Son. Now, for a man who had once believed he was the son of Pharaoh, who was considered a God among men, and then, in Egypt, to learn that he was the son of a lowly Hebrew, this must have been a sweet and startling revelation. God is my Father. Then the presence of God withdrew from Moses and he fell to the earth. And it was hours before Moses had sufficient strength to stand. And then, in that weakened condition, came Satan, Lucifer, the devil, tempting him, saying, Moses, son of man, worship me. There it is the insidious, ubiquitous lie for all time. Are we sons and daughters of God? the direct and lineal offspring of deity or something much less as Lucifer would have us believe. Are we of the same species as God or are we something else? The label that the Almighty put upon Moses prevailed at that critical moment. Moses looked at Satan and said, who art thou? For behold, I am a son of God in the similitude of his only begotten. And where is thy glory that I should worship thee? Get thee hence, Satan, deceive me not. For God said unto me, thou art after the similitude of mine only begotten. End quote. And now when Moses had said these words, Satan cried with a loud voice and ranted upon the earth. Moses was afraid at the awesome display of evil power, but he prayed, stood his ground, and prevailed. And it came to pass that Satan cried with a loud voice, with weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth, and he departed hence. It's no wonder that Satan wanted that stricken from the record, and for six or for 4,000 years, it was until the prophet Joseph restored it. Not exactly what you'd call flattering press coverage, but be that as it may. How did Moses detect the devil when he appeared as an angel of light? By the label that Lucifer put upon him. Satan made Moses a mere man, the son of man, while God made him so much more. Now, what is the power of a label? How many labels have affected you? Long ago, when I was just a lad, people I loved and trusted called me ugly, and I've never been able to see myself any other way since then, especially as that label somehow seems to keep being reapplied. But it's okay. I've learned to live with it. Moreover, I've been told so many times in my life that I have no common sense. And that I'm a wicked man and that I'm going to hell, etc, etc, etc. Well, these are the labels of Lucifer, and they don't lift, they don't exalt. President Russell M. Nelson said Unfortunately, our modern society is caught up in divisive disputation. Often unkind nicknames are added to or even substituted for given names. Labels, he said, are invented to foster feelings of segregation and competition. More serious separation results when labels are utilized with the intent to demean such as Jew, Gentile, Black, Hispanic, Mormon, or even worse. These terms camouflage our true identity, he said. As sons and daughters of God. The desire of my heart, he continued, is that we might rise above such worldly trends. God wants us to ascend to the highest level of our potential. He employs names that unify and sanctify. Of necessity, President Nelson said, we live in a world of labels. On a medicine bottle, a label can save our lives. Imagine if the pharmacist got careless or worse, malicious with his labels so too the labels we place on each other and on ourselves can lift and save or demean and destroy. It is our choice. Next story. March, 1852, the Missouri River was running with ice. A number of Latter-day Saint immigrants were stranded at St. Louis, Missouri and seeking passage to get upriver to Canesville, Iowa, where they could join the wagon trains and cross the plains to Salt Lake City. Time was pressing, but the captains wouldn't run the river in with the ice. River boats were hard to get. Church agents finally located an older steamboat called the Saluda. It was, at that time, in its sixth season and that when most river boats were good for only three to five. William Dunbar stood in the hold of the Saluda with James Ross, inspecting the old ship. An awful feeling of dread came over both men. When they looked at each other, both of them had tears in their eyes. Nevertheless, time was pressing and money for lodging was running low, and Dunbar booked passage on the boat, notwithstanding an awful feeling of foreboding. A short time later, he and his family got off and went shopping there in St. Louis for supplies. As they did so, and they're out in the community, the Saluda's bell clanged, and it immediately cast off and set sail upriver. The Dunbars missed the boat. Turns out they wouldn't be the only ones that missed the boat. Other families did as well. Mary Jane Walker and her family supposedly missed the boat and had to catch another one. Well, the Dunbars boarded another vessel, the Isabel, and followed the Saluda upriver. The Saluda went all the way up the river, where the river turns and goes across Missouri, to the city of Lexington. At Lexington, the Saluda arrived sometime in the week of April 4, 1852. Now, just up the river from Lexington, Missouri, remember it's coming down north to south and they're headed north. Just up the river from Lexington was a sharp bend in the Great Missouri. Four times in successive days, Captain Francis Belt of the Saluda tried to get up and around that bend in the Missouri, but the old Saluda, with only one engine, just couldn't make it around that bend. Current was too swift, ice load, etc. Well, in the meantime, William Dunbar and his wife Helen and their children caught up to the Saluda there at Lexington. The steamboat Isabel that they were riding on traveled around the bend. The Dunbars looked back and saw the saluda that they'd booked passage on, and Dunbar went to the captain and said, you promised to let us get back onto the the saluda. Well, the captain agreed. The Isabel cut power and drifted back down around, and the Dunbars transferred over to the saluda who then spent the night of Thursday, April 8th, 1852, camped on the open deck of the Saluda, just above the boilers. Early the next morning, William Dunbar got up early and went on shore to get something. While he was gone, Captain Belt, in frustration, Ordered the burners, the boilers, fired until they were red hot. He declared, quote, I'll round this bend or blow this steamboat to hell. End of quote. The mooring lines were cut loose and the engines engaged. The paddle wheel was in its second rotation when the boilers erupted in a tremendous explosion. A.O. Smoot, Abraham O. Smoot later recalled, quote, I saw the bodies of many of the unfortunate passengers and various parts of the boat flying in the air in every direction. My own preservation. He had been on the boat just moments before and offered passage on that boat for free if he would just get on, and he refused. He said, My own preservation. I can only attribute to the providence of the Almighty. For if I had remained a moment on the wharf to see the boat start, as would have been very natural for a person to do, I would have been blown into eternity as those were who stood there. End of quote. The deafening explosion of the saluta was heard for miles. A 600-pound safe was blown off the boat and landed on a bluff above the river. An estimated 100 of the 200 people on board the Saluda were killed, 29 of whom, it is estimated, were members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. When William Dunbar regained consciousness, he was lying at the water's edge. Moments later, he watched his wife die before his very eyes. He found the body of his young son, also killed by the explosion. But the body of his little girl, he was never certain to have found unidentified. Many of the victims of the Saluda were never recovered. Ann Knox Gardner believed that her husband, Alexander, who had left Scotland early, coming to the United States while the family stayed behind. Many today believe that Alexander Gardner was among the victims of the Saluda, whose body was never recovered. They were lost in the swift waters of the Missouri and never found. William Cameron Dunbar would later affirm that he was warned three times by the Holy Ghost not to board the Saluda, but because of pressing exigencies, he did not listen and lost his family to his everlasting regret. A.O. Smoot, on the other hand, felt one ill premonition upon inspecting the boat and refused to board her, even after he was offered the free passage. He would live. Both men would learn valuable lessons that would carry them into eternity. The Saluda remains to this day one of the worst disasters in overland migration and in our history, and certainly on the Missouri River. Now, I tell you that story not to dredge up painful memories, but to make a point. Today, our world is sailing toward rough waters. The wickedness and the depravity of mankind will very soon explode into disaster. The Almighty, through His Spirit and His chosen servants, is warning us, to Get off that boat. Come ye out from the wicked he has commanded be ye separate and touch not their unclean things he pleads with us my friends i pray every day that we will have the courage and the strength and the grace of god to do exactly that get off the boat that is sailing to disaster the following is one pioneer's perspective on courting, love, marriage, and family. It comes from the autobiography of Zadig Knapp Judd. I love this. And it is placed in here for a little bit of humor and to lighten the air just a bit. In the story, it goes like this. In the spring of 1851, a man by the name of John Dart came to Parowan with his family. A year later, one of his daughters, Mary Minerva Dart, began to show preference for me, Zadok said, above all other fellows. And then he said, and as I had no housekeeper but an old widow, Eubanks, O'Banks, I thought a good deal of Miss Mary. Threshing time came, and I was one of the hands threshing for Mr. Dart. He spoke of his going to the city soon after that work was done. I wanted to ask if I might go with him. I planned several ways, Zadok said, in which I might ask him for his daughter. But each time, my little heart thumped so hard that I was totally unable to do so, and he went away, and I had not his consent to marry his daughter. While he was away one day while in Mary's company, we were talking about another couple who were to be married soon, and I said simply, When shall we be married? Well, Zadik said, Not a very romantic proposal, but it served the purpose. Mary said, Well, just as soon as you were ready. With well, this settled, we went to the presiding elder to get him to perform the ceremony, but he refused to do so without the consent of Mr. Dart. So, Zadok continued, we had to wait until his return from the city. We were married soon after, November 14th, 1852, in the log house I had built with a house full of friends as witnesses. <laughs> Here is the whole story as I have learned it lately. And then he concludes with this poem. The summer was over, my flocks were all shorn, My fields were cut down, and I have harvested my corn. To the cottage of Sweet Mary, so neatly to view, I straightway went to courting, for I had nothing else to do. T'was down in the valley, together we sat. We passed away the hours in curious chat. I told her that I loved her and hoped she loved me too, and we'd love one another, for I had nothing else to do. So to the next village, together we roamed. In search of the clergy, we found him at home. I paid him his fee. He made one of us, too. We were married straightway, for we'd nothing else to do. Now here it is. Years have made a change since we came to this place. Our table is too small. Our cottage wanted space. We have healthy rosy lads and lassies, too, and we love the little rogues, for they have caused us else to do. End of quote. I love that. Isn't it interesting how now and forever children and family change us in so many wonderful ways. They waft us closer to God indeed. Parenting makes us more like our Heavenly Father and our Heavenly Mother. Thank the Lord for the opportunity. Near the end of the Savior's ministry, two events occurred which have been on my mind somewhat of late, especially since I was asked recently about the Second Coming. If you don't mind, I'd like to share this. On the last Monday of the Lord's life, He entered the temple in Jerusalem and found in its courts a scene that angered him flocks of cattle and sheep were milling and bawling money changers with their temples with their tables exchanged current coinage for temple coinage that pilgrims might pay the temple tax haggling vendors hawked their wares in a scene that would remind us of carnivals at fair time the noise the stench and especially the blasphemous desecration of holy ground moved the Lord to indignant anger. With whip and thunderous command, he drove them out into the streets where they belonged. No one dared oppose him, not even the leaders of the Jews whose pockets were being lined by the ill-gotten gain. Why? Because in guilt, there's always weakness. Twice the Lord cleansed the temple, once at the beginning of his ministry and again at the end. Now, I've wondered if there's a broader parallel to what he did then. I mean, the Lord cleaned house once on this earth with a flood. The second time, he will cleanse this house with fire. Oh, and clean it will be, of that we may be assured. Now, the second story takes place the following day of the Lord's life on Tuesday. While in the precincts of the temple, he prophesies the total destruction of the temple and denounces the leaders of the Jews for their hypocrisy and corruption. And then upon leaving the temple, he retires to the solitude of the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley. As he sat, probably looking over toward the city and the temple, his disciples came to him privately and asked him when the temple would be destroyed. When would the prophecy be fulfilled? And what would be the sign of his second coming? The Savior's answers to those questions constitute Matthew 24 and what we call the discourse on the signs of the times. Now, my purpose here is not to enumerate those signs but to look carefully at the emotional aftermath they had on the disciples. He described to the disciples such horrible things as wars, rumors of wars, and the whole earth in commotion, and men's hearts failing them for fear just before his coming. He speaks of the love of men, waxing cold, and iniquity abounding, of earthquakes, and desolating sicknesses, volcanoes exploding under water off Tonga, men killing one another, he said. And when he finished, the apostles were visibly scared and upset. Jesus calmed them by saying, Be not troubled, for when all these things come to pass, ye may know that the promises which have been made unto you shall be fulfilled. Now, here is my point. If the original 12 apostles were troubled by those signs of the times, most of which would not even occur in their lifetime, in their millennia, how much more understandable is it that we, in whose days those signs are being fulfilled, should be troubled? And if we're not troubled, perhaps to a measure we should be. However, there is no need to let either the signs or the flood of wickedness and corruption around us terrify us. I assure you, the good shepherd is right on schedule. He has not abandoned the flock just because of a little bad weather and some ravening wolves among us. I quote him again. Be not troubled. Don't be ignorant and foolish and ignore the signs. Know what they mean, but stand firm on the covenant path. As President Nelson said, the safest place for us in the days ahead is living inside our covenants. Thank you for listening. Many of the stories you heard today have been published and are archived at GlenrossonStories.com. If you would like more information, you can communicate with us there. We will be back again with another podcast next week.